15. And as we begin, I just kind of want to give an overview of kind of where we are and, and where we're going. We finished Galatians last week. So notice I did not say turn the book of Galatians. We have done that for about six months, but now uh, we're going to take about four weeks and spend some time in the Psalms. We spend time in the Psalms every single summer. We normally call it just a delighting in the Psalms, and so that's what we're going to do. A couple things we're going to hit on as we go through the Psalms is uh, we're going to talk about parenting. We're going to show how just applicable the Psalms are to, to helping us think about how do we parent. We're also going to be talking about table groups. If you remember, uh, we've talked a little bit now. uh, What we desire to call small groups is table groups. And we do that because when we have important conversations, we often have tables in between us. If you come to my house, it'll probably be, we'll sit at the dining room table, the coffee table, the patio table. If we meet somewhere, it'll be at a restaurant with a table or a coffee table or literally a coffee table at a coffee shop. Um, And we're not into tables. We're not going to sell you tables. Uh, but simply just a visible just kind of reminder the importance of getting together um, in a table group is really about just people coming together uh, purposely and intentionally uh, to come to become more and more like Jesus and so we're going to talk about that just as we go through the Psalms and, and how they point us to our need for one another and how we help each other grow to become more like Jesus also we're going to talk about elders um, as we move now into September, we're actually going to be presenting uh, the 2018 nominees for elders. And it sounds weird saving like that, 2018, not like red carpet type thing. Um, but it's not, I mean, we're just talking about elders, just people within our church. Um, and if you know, just a little bit of background, uh, this year, uh, the, we kind of had the elders all just took a little bit of a break. They kind of stepped down. Our elders have been serving for a long time, kind of without a break. Many of them were saying, man. We could just have a little bit of a break, but wasn't really built into the way we were just doing um, elders at the time. And so uh, we just kind of took a little year off, which has been difficult, uh, but it's really exciting now where we're at. And we're going to have some elders that we're going to be presenting in September. They'll be giving testimonies and talking to you. And then, of course, uh, we'll be voting and affirming in November at our annual meeting. But that's exciting, right? I mean, we have men that are growing up within this church for the purpose of leading and guiding and shepherding. And so we're going to be talking about that a little bit in the Psalms and moving more into that in September. But as we look at the Psalms, the Psalms are incredible. They're very hard for me personally to preach through because it's just a hard book for me to resonate and and to to preach through. Uh, Not as easy as, as some other books, but the more I read it, the more I love the Psalms because in the Psalms, we, uh, we see every emotion that there is under the sun. You see great sadness and great sorrow. You see great joy. Uh, what we really see is, is how do we live as God's people? That's really what we see. How do we live as God's people in God's world under God's rule? That's really what the Psalms show us. And so that's what we're going to do uh, for the next few weeks as we're in the Psalms. And so I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. Uh, we stand here when we read the Word of God. We do that simply just... This is God's word. It's inspired by him. We do it to honor, to glorify him as an act of worship before him. And so Psalm 15, we're going to read the whole psalm, all five verses. O Lord, who shall, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, 
who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the Psalms. I thank you just for the beauty that is, is laid out within them of what it is to live as your people. And Lord, as we come to a psalm today that kind of gives a description, a list of, of qualities that we are to have, Lord, I pray just by the power of your spirit that you would conform us more into your image, that this list would really be a reality in the life of every believer that is here. Lord, may this, may this description in your word challenge us, encourage us uh, today just as we walk according to your spirit. Lord, be with us now in your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Hey, real quick, just so you know, um, Andrew's not in here, and that's because he's downstairs teaching the students, uh, teaching the younger children with the high school students today. And so just so you know, it's one of the things that we're desiring more of is, is not only um, or do we want our students to learn, but then we're wanting them to learn how to give that information to share the gospel with others and so i encourage you to come alongside him later and encourage him uh because that's a pretty neat thing it's neat that our high school students are coming alongside our younger children uh to teach the gospel to them so that's just kind of fyi uh we start out with structure. I want you to be able to see the structure in text. And so our structure here today is fairly simple. Uh, in verse 1, we have a question. In verse 2 through 5, we have an answer. In verse 3, there's a promise. At the very last line, there is a promise that's given. That's going to be the structure that we follow as we go through this sermon. So we'll start out with the question, who will live with God forever? So right there we begin verse 1. It says, O Lord... The word Lord is the word Yahweh. This is the covenant name of God. This is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. This is the God who back in Genesis 3 says, One day I will send the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, to come crush the head of the serpent. So we're not talking about any God. We're not just talking about a deity. We're talking about the God of the Bible, the one true God. And so the question is, is who's going to live with this God forever? And before we look, I, I want to point out something. When we're in the Psalms, one thing that we notice and we need to notice is parallelism. Is, what that is, is there's given a line, then there's another line that almost verbatim repeats the first line. If you look, just verse 1. Who shall sojourn in your, holy, in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It's, it's almost the same, right? He doesn't do it for repetition's sake. He does it for clarity's sake. And you'll see this all throughout the Psalms. Uh, look at verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. Walks blamelessly, does what is right. So we have these parallel. It's not for repetition. It's for clarity. He's driving home the point. Often the second line, the second part of the parallel, further explains the first part. Um, there's also... Um, uh, antithetical parallelism is so contrasting look at verse 4 whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the lord so there's a contrast that is given he's bringing into focus who is it or, or how is it that we are to live well we, the vile person is despised but we honor the fear those who fear the lord so there's parallelism there's sometimes contrasting parallelism we need to see that while we're going through and, and this psalm has it just in abundance and, and we'll see that 
Now, we turn to the question. The author is saying, who's going to dwell uh, in the presence of God? We know he's talking about the presence of God because if you look at verse 1, he says, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, what tent exists in the Old Testament? The tabernacle, right? That is the, uh, the, the mobile tent of God in the Old Testament until the temple is built. And where is the temple built? On a hill. And so what we have here is who shall dwell in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? We're talking the presence of God, where God dwells. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, access to God is very limited. Only the Levite tribe could enter the temple, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God's presence was said to reside, and he could only go there one time a year. And before entering the temple, Levites would go through extensive cleansing rituals. They'd go through fasting. And these were necessary because we have a holy God, a perfect God. And so only a clean people could come before them. And so they did all these rituals, these outward rituals, to show how they were preparing their heart to come before God. But the point is, in the Old Testament, access is limited. So David's looking forward to a day when all of God's people are going to dwell in the presence of God. He's saying, who, who's going to live in the tent of God? Who's going to dwell in his presence? Not visit once a year. Not only one guy from one tribe, but one, when will God's people dwell there? And what will this person look like? Now, there's two ways to answer this question. You could give the condition or you could give the description. Now, the condition would, of course, be by faith. Who's going to dwell in the presence of God? Those who have faith in God through Jesus Christ. That's the condition that must be met, and that condition is given to us by grace through God, uh, that we would have faith in him. But that's not what our writer does. He says, I don't want to talk about the condition. He wants to give the description. He wants to describe the person who has faith in God. And because David is focusing on the description uh, of this person, he's going to describe a person which we might say lives a holy life. And Sinclair Ferguson, he's an author and a pastor, uh, he wrote a book, and it was called Devoted to God, and that is how he defined holiness, devotion to God. God is holy, he's perfectly devoted to himself. We are called to be holy now, and what that means is we're called to be devoted to to God. And the psalm is going to give us, psalmist is going to give six descriptions of what it looks like to live a holy life. And so when we come to a, a list like this um, in Psalm 15, how do we read them? How do we read lists that says, do this? This is what your life is to look like. We read them prayerfully. We don't read them thinking of well, I hope my spouse is really listening. Or, man, this guy's not here. I will text him and say, you need to listen to this sermon. You know, that's not necessarily the way we go. But we want to come prayerfully and say, God, make this list, this list of, of what it looks like to live a holy life, make this a reality in my life. But this, when we come to lists like this, these also give us prayer points for how to pray for our spouse, how to pray for our children, how to pray for our church. If you want to say, oh, what do I pray for my church? Well, let's pray that we walk blamelessly. Let's pray that we, we speak truth in our hearts. So these lists operate as a way to pray for ourselves and for others. And so let's look at the answer. The answer is, the one who's going to live with God forever is the one who lives a holy life. And so that we have six things that are going to give us a description. Number one, a Christian is 
blameless. We see that verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. The Christian is to be above reproach. At the table group I'm in, we're studying Proverbs right now. And this last week, we had an amazing just conversation. We're studying the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs presents two ways to live. You either live the way of folly, foolishness, rebellion to God, or you live in the way of wisdom, the way that obeys God, the way that seeks to honor God in all of life. This is what this means here. We're to live blameless we are to live in the wisdom of god we are to live as children of god desiring to give honor to god in all of our actions this doesn't mean that we're perfect okay so we got to be careful because when we start talking blameless we say well who can really live blameless but we're to be blameless and the Bible doesn't use this word as just kind of throwing it out there but you won't really be this so he's saying we're to be blameless before him but it doesn't mean perfect because 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says that all who think they do not sin are liars. But imagine you have a child and you tell them, go clean your room. Which you know is really a vain command. Anyway, or not, it's, a, it's an impossible command anyway. But let's say they go to their room and, and they clean their room. They spend 20 minutes in there and, and they say, okay, I'm done. So you go and you check. And you notice that the blanket on their bed, the corners don't really match up. And you look at the books that they stacked, and the, I mean, they're just not perfectly stacked. We're not talking parallel lines here. I mean, a little twisted here and there. And we look at the action figures. I mean, we could have done better placement if we'd gone tallest to shortest, you know, could have, you know, really. But we don't pick on those things. We don't say, well, you did a terrible job. I mean, if you'd done it like this, and we don't correct like that not when those are the things but what do we say we say good job we say thank you and when we act in faith to god and we live in obedience to him he takes our imperfect works and he counts them righteous and blameless before him does that make sense like he looks at us as his children who are striving to love him and to honor him and he doesn't say well if i was to have done that well, yes, God could do everything much perfect, much more perfect, and, and much more perfect without us, but he desires to use us, and he rejoices in our acts done in faith to him. Now, interestingly, this is the first qualification that Paul gives in Timothy when writing about who the elders are to be. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, elders are to be above reproach or, or to be blameless. So those who lead uh, the church, those who lead God's people are to be striving for holiness, striving for blamelessness. So when we consider elders in September and we bring men before, one thing we're to think of is, well, are they blameless? Not perfect, but are they striving for holiness? Do they set an example for the church that we are to follow? But notice being blameless is not limited to elders. We don't just say, Good thing I'm not an elder. <laughs> I don't have to be blameless, right? But what we have here is the psalmist, he's writing to you and to me. He's writing to the people of God. He's writing to Israel. He's writing to those who have faith. Not only elders, but all of us are called to be blameless. Elders are simply those who are recognized within the church who are striving to be blameless and desiring to lead others that way. But all of us are called to live in a way that honors God. Number two, a Christian uses his tongue for good. In verse three, we read that we are not to slander and that we're to speak truth in our hearts. Words matter. 
it can sting like a bee, or they can comfort like a blanket on a, on a cold winter night as they wrap around us. They can be used to cut people down, or they can be used to build others up. In Psalm chapter 10, if you were to read Psalm 10 verse 7, it says, A sinful person's mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. And in fact, if you go to the book of James, he will talk about the danger of the tongue and that nothing can tame the tongue. And that's true. Nothing but the gospel can tame the tongue. And when, God, and when we believe in Jesus, our tongue is transformed from a weapon into an instrument that is used to love one another. Have you ever think about, why do we speak? Ever thought about, like, why do we speak? Well, who else speaks? God speaks. And what image are we made in? The image of God. The reason we speak is because God speaks. And when we're saved by his grace, we begin to use our words the way God uses his words. We do them to love others, to, make, to bring glory to God. And now through the Spirit, that's how we speak. We speak truth because Jesus is truth. We speak in love because Jesus came as love and loved us. We comfort those who are hurting because Jesus comforts us. We rebuke those who teach false teaching because Jesus rebuked those also. As Christians, we don't use our words to bring attention to ourselves. If you go through Paul's letters, he'll often say, I don't use my rhetoric. I don't try to point people to myself. He talks about how foolish he often speaks and for the point of making much of Jesus. We don't use our words to draw attention to ourselves, but we use our words to bring glory to God, to help others see Jesus. And, and what is it that the Word of God does? What does the Word of God point us to? Or should I say, who does the Word of God point us to? It reveals Jesus to us. So just as God's words are meant to reveal Jesus for His glory, so we, who have now been saved, are to use our words for the love of others to the glory of God. Parents, I, I want to encourage you. Um, prayerfully consider your words. Your words will either help your children better understand the gospel and their need for Jesus, or they will blur and repel the gospel from your, repel the gospel from your children. Jesus says in Luke chapter 645, 645, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, whatever's in our hearts is what comes out. So, so what comes out of our hearts? What kind of words do we use? Is it a, a love for the gospel, which is seen in a love for others, a way that we honor others? Or is it a love for ourself that ends up slandering others, gossiping against others? Can you imagine a people that does not slander others? Can you imagine a group of people that come together, they do not gossip, they do not curse, they do not use racial slurs, they do not cut others down with their words. What an amazing group of people that would be, wouldn't it? But there is a group that's supposed to live like that, right? It's the church. And the way we do that is because now, by the grace of God, His Spirit lives in us, that our, our hearts have been transformed, that now out of these new hearts that are being made more like Jesus, our words would come out and help lead others to Jesus. We no longer tear people down, but we build them up. We point them to Jesus. We shepherd them to Jesus. This is what we do as parents. We shepherd them with our words and our actions that they would know Jesus Christ. And, and one thing, I, I think 
that we as a church, I think we do this. In fact, this description here, I just want to brag on you. Like, I think that we do this a lot as a church. I think that we are a church who is striving to live in obedience to God. In fact, I was talking to someone uh, a little bit before uh, I, I came up here. He said, man, this church is just so loving. And I really do. I think God is working powerfully in us, in this church, transforming us. And so this list largely, I think that this is what's happening. But this is also a list that we're to continue to strive for. So I want to encourage us. I think this is present in us. That's an awesome thing. I think when people come here or when people see you out in the community, they say, these people are just loving. There's something about them. But let's continue to strive after the holiness of God, that he would continue to transform our words, continue to transform our hearts and our actions and what we see here in this list. But I do want to encourage you. I truly see that as we live here together and what I hear about you talking or others that sometimes see you, that you are a very loving people, and that is a testimony of God's grace in you. And so it is exciting to see that. Um, Next one, a Christian is kind to others. Not only do we love people with our words, but we love people with our actions. Look at the end of verse 3. We read, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Okay, so we finished Galatians, and if you remember, the last two chapters, they're all about application, right? First four chapters, heavy theology, justified by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And then chapters five and six, what does it look like to be God's people? And Paul summarizes and says, we love others. Chapter five, verse 14 of Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. So what Paul would do, he would look at Psalm 15 and he would look at the description given in verses 2 through 5 and say, that says love others. That's the fulfillment of the law. We could summarize this as love others. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are about, all about how we love God, right? You know, take his name in vain, honor the Sabbath, those kind of things. But then verses, or, uh, commands 5 through 10 are all about how we love others because those who love God love others the fulfillment of the law is that we love other people love is the primary characteristic of the church of the christian so as we look at this list we could summarize it by just simply saying we're we're to love others because the gospel frees us from loving ourselves so that we can actually love other people remember we've talked and we just used this simple little uh illustration The reason there's so many divorces today is because we're not committed to one another's happiness. We're committed to our own happiness. And therefore, when you cease to meet my happiness, we divorce. But the gospel frees us from that kind of thinking. So now I'm concerned about your love, your joy, your happiness. I'm not enslaved to my desires, but God has freed me. So I love you as he loves you. When we look at uh, Galatians chapter 5 and we read about the fruit of the Spirit, what does it begin with? It begins with, this is interaction, it begins with, Chantley's got it, love, love, joy, peace, patience. It begins with love, and love operates as like that umbrella word <clears throat> that covers all the other words. All those other ones play into love. We're to be loving people because the love of God now dwells within us because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Now, oftentimes, I've heard people say things like this. Well, I would be more loving if this person wasn't such a grouch. 
or I would be more loving if this situation was different or if such and such person didn't do such and such. Have you ever thought that? That's a, that's a, that's a, I, I think we all think that. Um, it's wrong, but I think we all think that. Um, Acts chapter 4. The apostles are arrested and they're beaten. After being released from prison, they gather together with the church. And they all say, God, if we're really going to be obedient to you and we're going to love others, you need to change these people. Is that what they pray? It's not what they pray. They pray in chapter 4, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They don't pray that Christianity will become easier, the Pharisees will lay off, the Sadducees will lay off, that maybe the legalization of Christianity. They don't pray for that. They don't pray for favor in the eyes of others. That's not necessarily what they're praying for. Now, it's okay to pray for others. It's not wrong to pray for others. But what do they pray for? God, make us bold. Make us bold in this world because we see your word. And in your word, we see that as Christians, we will be reviled. The world's not always going to love us. Some people may, some people may not. But regardless of how they treat us, may we be bold. Meaning, may we be obedient. May we love you despite the consequences. And I want you to think about it. When we are reviled and persecuted, and we respond in love, that's one of the most powerful ways we show the gospel. For think about, when did Jesus come? Did he come when we loved him? We said, Jesus, come and save me? Or when does he come to die on the cross? Romans 5 says it's when we hated him, when we rejected him, when we were his enemies. Jesus comes to a people who reject him. That's how we have the gospel. And so when we love others, as Jesus loved us, even when we didn't love him, he came. When we love others like that, we are showing them the power of the gospel. We are pointing them to the one who truly does love them. And so uh, when we are being reviled and we respond in love, we're not being walked over. We're given an awesome and blessed opportunity to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next, we see a Christian values what God values. Look at verse 4. We read, in whose eyes a vile person is, is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now, this verse is not saying we hate, we hate non-Christians. It's not saying that, but it's saying we, we simply love the things that God loves. And God loves his children. He loves his church. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? Do you prioritize the church? Do you long to be with God's people? Do you know that you have a stronger bond with believers in Christ than you do your own blood family? Do you know that? There's a stronger connection because it's not just DNA that holds us, it's the blood of Christ that is unbreakable that holds us together. This is one reason church membership is so important. It's the commitment of God's people to God's people. It's valuing what God values. It's also why we believe table groups are important. We want to value what God loves, what God values, and so God values the people of God. He loves the people of God, so we want to commit not only to a large body, but to a, a small group of Christians that we can actually love, serve, fellowship with, encourage, spur one another on, exhort, because not only are we concerned about our personal holiness, 
but because we value what God loves, we're concerned about each other's holiness. That's the beauty of, of a table group. See, in a group like this, we come together, we'll probably have some good conversations, but we're not really going to be able to dig into the meat of each other's lives. But as we get to know each other in, in smaller settings, we're able to open up, we're able to, to uh, love one another and serve one another and rub against one another in a way that we spur one another on to become more like Jesus. I think ultimately, so we're not just talking about the loving of God's people, but we're talking about the valuing of what God values. So just think, do you value what God values? Do I love the things that God loves, and do I hate the things that he hates? So um, one thing that God has done in my life to bring conviction over and to, to kind of transform and shape is the things that I would watch on TV. So my wife and I, we have all 10 episodes of Friends. You guys remember Friends? Yes, most of you do. If you don't remember Friends, that's, or if you never have heard of Friends, that's a sad thing because I'm not that old. We should all know Friends. Uh, it went for 10 seasons. We own all 10 DVD packs, and we would watch them. I mean, we love them. I mean, you get enraptured in these, like, six people's lives. I mean, is, jo- is Ross and, and Rachel going to end up together? You rejoice. Great. Monica and, J- and Chandler are finally together. And then you're always like, what's going to happen with Phoebe and Joey? You know, their joy is your joy. Their sadness is your sadness. And, you're like, you just watch them, and it's awesome, and it's fun. And then you step back, and you say, okay, what am I happy about here? What am I laughing at? What am I rejoicing at? I'm rejoicing when this guy sleeps with this girl outside the domain of marriage and everyone's happy about that. And as they talk about divorce and watch how that happens, and as Monica and Chandler sleep together and keep it a secret for a long time, we're rejoicing on that. And yet we're sad at other things when, oh man, the relationship didn't work out. Oh, they broke up. Oh, he's sleeping with this person now. And all of a sudden it began to hit that I am I am loving the things God hates. And the very things that God says in his word, that if you do these things, you will not enter the kingdom of God, that's what's entertaining me. And so that's then what God really just began changing in my life, just thinking, how do I rejoice in what God condemns? How do I do that? Now you might say, well, okay, if we hold that standard, then we'll watch nothing. Which I would then kind of respond like, well, would that be so bad? Like, is TV necessary like breath? And of course, we'd say, ha-ha, no, it's not. But we like, still need to watch TV, right? And I'm not advocating for not watching TV. I'm simply saying, are we being mindful of what we're watching? Are we being mindful of what we're being entertained with? Are we rejoicing at what God rejoices? Are we hating the things that God hates? As Christians, God's Spirit is in us. He's working in us, transforming our desires that we would love the things he has. And parents, I would tell you, your kids, they watch, they see what you watch, they see who you hang out with, they see what you read, they see the websites that you're on. What do they see? Do they see the very things that God values? Or do they see the things that God hates? And as we consider elders for the church, we want to... um, We want those who noticeably desire the things that God desires. Again, we're talking blameless. We're not talking perfect, but we're talking blameless, considering continually striving after God. And that is how God has made us, and His Spirit is in us. 
that we would love the things he loves. Next, a Christian is full of integrity. At the end of verse 4, we read, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The Holman Christian translates it this way, who keeps his word at whatever the cost. So the idea seems to be that we are people of our word. Our yes is yes, our no is no. We do not waver in the wind when pressure comes. And we keep our word even when it might not benefit us. We make a promise. All of a sudden now it's going to be an inconvenience for us. What do we do? Do we keep the promise? Or do we, well, I'm busy now. I can't really help you or or whatever it is. But we're people of our word. I can't help but think of Paul in the book of Acts. He's stoned. He's whipped. He's beaten. He's shipwrecked. But in all that, he does not recant Christianity. He does not move away from the gospel. He does not say, well, maybe we should start wavering, but he continues to say, no, no, I boast in nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing but the gospel. This is important today, that we, as the people of God, are full of integrity, that we are known for our words, that we are known to stand firm. We value the things that God values consistently. Next, a Christian is generous with his money. In verse 5, we see two things. First, we see that we do not charge interest to those that we, um, that we lend money to. Now, it was permitted for Israelites to charge interest to foreigners, but to fellow Israelites, they were not to charge interest to. Uh, they were to be generous. They were not to say, well, I mean, I know that we're family, but how much can I get out of you for this? The idea was, no, we're family, we, we love one another, so now we, we give what God loves, uh, what God has given us, and we share it in abundance. Secondly, we do not take a bribe against the innocent. When money is what we desire and lust after, it will cause us to do incredibly wicked things, like here we see in the psalm. Does not take a bribe against the innocent. If we love money, we're, com- we're, we're willing to compromise justice at times. We're willing to compromise loving others we're talking actually in our our table group this last week if we love money if we go after the the path of foolishness and we desire that raise more than anything it will affect the way we treat those who are in the way of us getting that raise we will step on them we will crush them we will jump over them we will do whatever it takes to get the raise because that's the goal but by the gospel we're saved from that so money's not the highest goal but loving others is the greatest goal You see, when we love money, our sinful desires are like a puppet master, and and, and they just kind of pull the strings. And money says, oh, let's go this way. So we go this way. Says go this way. We go whatever the desire is. But the good news of the gospel is it cuts the strings. It cuts them so that now we're free. We're free to live in a way that honors God, to use the blessings he gives us in a way to bless others and honor him. Now, before we move on, um, and we'll look at verse, the end of verse 5, I want to point out, so we have a holy life here, but what's he really given us a picture of? Who has David really given us a picture of? A picture of Jesus, right? This is ultimately the picture that he has given us. For for who actually is perfectly blameless? Who, Who will dwell on the holy hill? Who does not slander with his tongue? Who does not take a reproach against his friend? Who does not revile those, or who does, uh, who does, who honors those who fear the Lord and swears to his own hurt and does not change. Is that not Jesus? Every moment goes to the cross, does not waver, but with joy he goes to the cross, being reviled and rejected by others. 
so that by his death on the cross, we who believe in him would be forgiven of our sins, would be brought into the family of God, where we'd be made new, given his spirit, adopted so that we become family, not only with one another, but ultimately that God becomes our father. This is a picture of Jesus, and the good news is, is by faith in Jesus, this is who Jesus is making us to be. The point is, those who will live with Jesus are those who are transformed into the image of Jesus now. You see, that this is who God is making us to be. As Christians, we've been saved to live like Jesus. And this is where the promise comes in. Those who live a life of holiness will never be separated from God. Look at verse 5. He who does these things shall never be moved. You will be in the tent. You will be on the holy hill. You will be in the presence of God. You will never be removed from the presence of God. Amen, indeed. This is, the Bible does not, it's not a book that says, hey, believe in God and hopefully you get there. But you'll have no idea until the end. I mean, wouldn't that be scary? Now, honestly, that's, Catholics will walk in that way. And every other faith walks that way because they do not have assurance because they're works-based. And if you're works-based, then you're saying, well, I have to do this, I have to do this, then ultimately it resides in God's hands. And did I do enough? Did I not do enough? But when we come to the Bible, it's about giving us assurance. David is giving us assurance. Look, if you're a people of faith, this is what your life will look like, and you can have assurance you will live with God. And this is even greater seen in the New Testament. Let me just give a few verses. 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. I think these are up on the screen. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. There's assurance there. If you practice righteousness, what? You are righteous. 1 John 3, 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Notice love, righteousness. Love is always the sum of the law. So if we flip this, whoever does righteousness, whoever does love his neighbor, will or are the children of God. If we flip that. 1 John 3, 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So if you keep the commandments of God, does it say, well, you, you might know, you, you hope? No, it says you know. You know. Now, this isn't the only marker of our assurance, but it's one of the markers of our assurance, our works. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive for peace without, with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let us not think that this holiness does not matter. We've been saved to live in holiness, and it's in this holiness that we are guaranteed to be with God forever. Now, this does not mean we're saved by works. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We'll say that all day long. But Ephesians 2.10 says that God has saved us to do the good works which he prepared beforehand for us to do. Listen, we are not saved by works, but we are saved to do work. We are saved to work work and as christians sometimes we get kind of kind of crazy on that we kind of get fuzzy it's like well do we really want to talk about works be careful remember galatians he warns about the antinomians so 
Some of you are like, man, I wasn't here for Galatians. What's that word? It's the against the law. Like, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter if I read the Bible. It doesn't matter if I gather with the church. It doesn't matter if I love others. I'm a Christian. I'm saved. That's antinomianism. Paul warns against that. He says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. 5, 13 or 14. But what? We, we've been saved by grace, now by his grace, to live in a way that honors him because his spirit is in us, transforming us. And so works are not optional. They're not what saves us, but they're the evidence of our salvation. They're the fruit that comes from the root, and the root that is connected to Jesus Christ will produce the fruit of righteousness. Now you might think, well, is, is it possible is it possible to live with it? Well, yes, it is. 1 Peter chapter 1.15, we're commanded to be holy because God is holy. But how do we do that? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, this is what he says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Remember, what is David longing for in this psalm? He's longing for a day in which God's people will live with him forever. How is that possible? Only if they live a holy life. How do we live a holy life? Because we've been saved by Jesus that now we're a holy people, a holy nation. That's how. Because by the Spirit of God, we have been made holy. And now, God, David does not give us a ladder to climb here so that we become holiness. He gives us a beautiful path that describes the holy life of those who are holy because of faith in Jesus Christ. So we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace to work. And if we reject or ignore holiness now, think how miserable we would be in, in heaven with God where all we will live is holiness. We've been saved that now the Spirit is transforming us, that we love Him, that we would live and walk in the way that pleases and honors God. Because that is who we've been made to be. We've been made holy, to live out holiness, knowing for sure that we will live with God forever in his presence, never, ever to be removed. So let us walk in the path of Psalm 15 as it guides us into a life that pleases God. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, the team will come up. Father, I thank you for the list that you've given us. You've given us a list, a description of what it is to be holy. You've given us a description of what your Spirit does in us. Lord, I pray that, that each person who is here, that, Lord, we would look at this list and, and we would pray that your Spirit would transform us more and more, that this list would become a reality in our life. That this list would not be a weight crushing us, but it would be that guide, that path that shows us what you are doing in us and how we are to live a life that pleases you, that honors you, a life that loves others so that others will come to know you. God, I pray that as Timberline Baptist Church, as a church here in Thurston County in 98503, that we would have a reputation. And I pray that our reputation would be that of love, that we would love others because we are walking in the way that you have called us to. Not in a way that the world would define the world love, but in a way that you define the world, the word love. A love that honors you, that glorifies you, that walks according to your law, that loves others and builds others up and is interested not only in our holiness, but in the holiness of others. God, I pray that we as a church would pray this psalm 
for ourselves, for our families, for our workplaces, and God, for our church. Let this psalm become a reality. May we be known for the love of God and that we respond in love and wisdom in this world because, God, you have saved us by your grace. And it is a beautiful thing that we have. And God, now by our actions and by our words, may we proclaim the gospel each and every day. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.